You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. From Suite 2525C of the Conrad Hilton Hotel in Chicago, Hubert Humphrey planned his nomination for president. Cajoling delegates, promising favors, lining up previously unfriendly bosses, and keeping on the right side of the incumbent President Lyndon Johnson. Demanding work, and enough, according to aides and reporters present in the candidate's suite, to keep him oblivious to the riot that was going on below. Yet for anyone seeking to pretend that 1968 was just a normal Democratic Party convention, there was one clue something was wrong. Even in the top floors, the ventilation system at the Hilton began drawing in tear gas. And that tear gas was irritating, but not as crippling as it was for those below. And not Humphrey's main concern on a day that he might, still a might, be nominated for president. Police would handle the protesters. He had to keep the city bosses in line and keep the southern delegates from doing something crazy like nominating Lyndon Johnson, even though he didn't want the nomination in 68, so he said. Nobody really quite knew at this point. He had to keep McCarthy and McGovern, the two peace candidates running in the Democratic Party, who each of them had no chance, from uniting and joining with some other group, backing someone, perhaps Teddy Kennedy. There were a lot of shadows in the Chicago night. To add to all his doubt, his protector and host, Richard Daly, the mayor of Chicago, held 118 delegates close to his vest, an iron Buddha, as one reporter called him, silent as to where he would go in this nomination contest. Tension, the normal tension of a party convention in an era before they were just TV coronations. It all grew hotter when he tried to put the party together with a compromise plank on Vietnam, and it was rejected by the incumbent president, Lyndon Johnson. No, only a hawkish plank that would make no one happy would do. Given all this and the culmination of a career as mayor of Minneapolis, a significant liberal senator, crusader for civil rights, a narrow loser to John Kennedy in the primaries, and now a sidekick to LBJ... A little whiff of something foul. And some excited talk by sweet visitors about what was going on in the streets didn't weigh heavy in Vice President Humphrey's mind. And let's stop right there. I can relate all the political machinations of 1968 that someone like me may consider important. This is politics and history, of course, but we know that that's not what anyone remembers about 1968. For that, we need to drop 24 flows below. A thick blue line of police surround the ragged young hippies. A man runs up a flagpole and tries to take down the flag. The police don't like this and run into the crowd to arrest the person, clubbing and pushing anything that gets in their way. They grab the young yippie, the young long hair as many of them would refer to them, who screams Sig Hail as he is put into a cruiser, TV filming. Scatter protesters scuffle with cops. They are clubbed. A protest leader attempts to calm tensions. He has marshals. Now, these are students who have been trained to be the order enforcers among the protesters. And he has them lock arms and keep themselves between 
the more unorganized protesters who are getting angry now, and the police. The protest leader then attempts to negotiate with police, saying he can control his crowd. Squawk boxes. These are small, megaphone-like devices that can carry a public address. Sorry, this is the pre-cell phone era. They blare instructions to be nonviolent. They want us to react. We won't let them. This is the voice of David Dillinger, 50-year-old peace veteran and a leader of the Mobilization Committee to Stop the Vietnam War. Instead of negotiating, an army of blue helmets moves forward and clubs and beats one of Dillinger's lieutenant, the one that was trying to negotiate, and club and beat the marshals in between. The message of peace and love is lost now. The protesters and police scuffle. Tom Hayden, leader of the Students for a Democratic Society, grabs the microphone from the older Dillinger. Peace is over. Nonviolence is over. They will now fight their way to the convention hall. This protest, soon to become a melee, arguably the most famous of the 1960s protests, a protest that may have been responsible for calling an election. This protest started as a dud. Dillinger, Hayden, and the Mobilization Committee had called for 100,000 protesters to come to Chicago and protest the party in power. They never got the 100,000. Part of that is because Lyndon Johnson decided in 1968 not to run for re-election, and he was a lightning rod for protesters. Eugene McCarthy and Robert Kennedy, two peace candidates, were battling for the nomination. And one of the peace candidates, Robert Kennedy, was assassinated, which threw the whole thing into flux. In the end, about 10,000 came to Chicago, one-tenth of what was called for. And they were in different places in the city at different times. Compared to other protests, by the time you're getting to 1968, this one paled. And since Daly put his entire police force on duty and called the National Guard, Police actually outnumbered protesters. If they would have left the protesters alone, who knows? This might have turned out to be a joke. At first, indeed, it did start that way. In front of the Picasso statue, protesters nominated a pig, Pegasus, for president. Well, Pegasus' political career would not last that long. The police, under orders from Mayor Daley, who could see it from a city fall window, ordered the arrest of Pegasus. And there were fun and games and chanting and music going on in Lincoln Park, a little bit north of the convention center. But it was no joke when police decided to clear out the park. The park had strict rules and signs. No one was to stay in the park past 11 p.m. With orders to clear the protesters out, they used tear gas and clubs Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday, as the peace plank was defeated in the convention in Chicago. Scuffles broke out, even in the convention hall. Skirmishes continued up until Wednesday, police literally fighting with protesters when Hubert Humphrey would be nominated. And when Tom Hayden, now having seized control of the protest leadership from Dillinger, decided that the only way for protesters to avoid a death trap, the only way to avoid a beating that no one would see, was to march to where the TV cameras were, the convention hall. The very reason that the Democratic Party chose Chicago was to avoid the kind of disorder which would look bad. Republicans had their nomination in Miami that year and selected Richard Nixon without incident. The TV networks asked the Democrats to stay in that city. It would save costs. But Florida was a no-go. It had a Republican governor. And he would then be in charge of the National Guard if anything went wrong in Miami. Couldn't do that. Where else? New York? No, the governor was Republican, Nelson Rockefeller. Pennsylvania? No, Rich Schaefer, a Republican. California? No, not unless Democrats wanted Republican Ronald Reagan 
in control of the order of their convention. Illinois and Chicago was the only place where police, city and state, and the National Guard were under the friendly control of Mayor Richard Daley. And in fact, in the sterile convention hall and the isolated Hilton suite, it seemed like maybe things wouldn't go so bad. The pesky reporters were focusing on a few squabbles in the convention hall, but otherwise, Humphrey liked his chances. He had to get through this convention. If he could get out from under President Johnson after the convention, he'd be able to wiggle a little. Maybe attract some of the people who didn't like him now. He knew he could beat Richard Nixon. Kennedy had beaten him in 1960. Nixon tried to run for California governor after being vice president and lost. Senator Humphrey was a longtime liberal the type of politician that normally would appeal to the people protesting in the streets. Despite his link to LBJ, who the protesters cursed, Humphrey was the leader of the first civil rights plank in 1948, that Democratic convention. Twenty years later, now he was the nominee. It was a nice storyline for the party, especially as it was known Nixon had a plan to reach out to the South, and Alabama Governor George Wallace was probably going to run a third-party campaign. Just to reinforce this image, Humphrey brought up Jackie Robinson for a photo op. This was 1968. It was the new Democratic Party. But try as they might, politicians can't always create the storyline. As the afternoon came to an end and the convention recessed, about two to 3,000 protesters egged on by Hayden's squawk boxes marched down Michigan Avenue to get to the Hilton of the TV cameras. Stop the war, they screamed. And as they met police resistance, let us march. Fuser mixed on whether the mobilization leaders wanted to draw the police into a fight in order to get attention. Dillinger insisted he was for nonviolence all the way at all times. Hayden was more fatalistic about it. It was unavoidable when the mobilization committee asked for permits from the city of Chicago and they were denied it. Everything we did, he said, was automatically illegal. Both sides felt strongly about their positions, the police and the protesters. And remember, this wasn't a mobilization committee to show some disfavor about the Vietnam War. It was a mobilization committee to stop the war. Stop it now. Protesters didn't just sing songs and hold flowers. Well, there was some of that. They threw rocks, bricks, bottles, and police feared Molotov cocktails. The police, mostly from blue-collar neighborhoods, resented these college kids coming in. Long hairs, as they called them. Orders from above were clear. Get them out of Chicago. If they don't stay overnight, that's good. We should not, as we sit in comfort and hopefully peace, underestimate the impact of a bottle thrown at a cop's head. Nor the feelings of a 20-year-old flower child as she is cracked in the head by a burly Chicago sergeant for the first time in her life experiencing violence. This was a war, and it enraged people on both sides. The protesters, by the time he got to Wednesday, had no more patience. And that's why, as they approached the blue line in guarding the Hotel Hilton, the squawk boxes blared, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. But the front of the protesters, as they met this wall of police, and maybe urged everyone not to move forward so fast, but the back, in turn, urged the front to move forward. Squawk boxes continued, the whole world is watching, the whole world is watching. In the beginning of this Michigan Avenue action, Protesters weren't charging the police. The protesters in front kneeled. Yet in the hotel above, sympathetic people, maybe McGovern or McCarthy delegates perhaps, were throwing anything they could get, hotel stationery, some cases bottles, whatever they could get, 
down at the cops, and they were booing loudly. The cops charged, clubbed everyone, dragged protesters through the street, even locked up observers and launched tear grass grenades. This was dubbed the Battle of Michigan Avenue, and reporters who were watching from the hotel suites couldn't believe their eyes. Theodore Wright, watching from above, could call it nothing else but a police riot. The whole world was watching. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. But not live. See, Mary Daly hadn't made it easy on the media. There was a telephone strike, suspiciously in a city where Daly and the unions were pretty tight, that shut down telephone except where Daly wanted it, at the show in the convention center. Daly banned the customary waving of speeding tickets from media who were delivering film. No, they would be stopped and ticketed like everyone else. And they couldn't get to their cars easily because they couldn't park near the hotel. So film had to be driven slowly or walked at normal speed. This didn't make the media entirely happy, and it may have influenced their decision on coverage. What was supposed to be on TV at about 8 o'clock was Carl Stokes, the African-American mayor of Cleveland, who would put Humphrey's name into nomination. Now, just think about this for a second. This is 1968. Now, 40 years later, America would nominate and elect a black president. But this is 1968. And this is a big radical moment. An African-American is going to nominate the Democratic Party nominee for president. Humphrey wanted this on TV. Well, just as this was going on, news directors at the national networks were confronted with a choice. Yes, they had uh, Mayor Stokes nominating Humphrey, but at the same time, the story appeared to be outside the hall. The film that was filmed probably anywhere from an hour or half hour before was showing protesters being beaten by Chicago police. Even though, at this point, Mayor Stokes was speaking, the streets were calmer. TV was showing clubbing and dragging, scuffling and chanting. By the time Humphrey got the nomination, at 11 p.m. Wednesday night, Theodore White was writing in his notebook, the Democrats are finished. And Humphrey was telling people his nomination was as welcome as the Hong Kong flu. In a sense, Chicago was just symptomatic of what was going on in the late 60s. A politician could not have a speech and avoid protests. I've kind of forgotten about that these days. Colleges were occupied. So were parks. Humphrey was puzzled to ask why protesters didn't pick in Nixon. He was more hawkish. But these protests weren't that nuanced. The Democratic Party was the governing agent. We were in Vietnam. And these protests went after them without regard for Humphrey's liberal background. When he arrived in Chicago, First thing, a protest sign said, we used to be with you. I talk about Chicago because recent events, occupation, protests, gaining media attention. Chicago is an example of a protest that didn't go as planned. It did have some good effects, protesters probably would like, but it also elected Richard Nixon, who would end the war but would take a long time doing it. They're sad people who've dropped out of corporate society but nurse a manic wit for mocking society. Thus they intrigued the media. So wrote Theodore White about the so-called hippies who filled Chicago streets in 1968. 
Today, similar descriptions are made of protesters who have since September 17th occupied Wall Street. Actually, they've occupied a park to the west of Wall Street, Zuccotti Park, a bonus park, which means it is owned privately. But due to a loophole in zoning laws, because they allowed the owners to build a building high in the sky, they had to build a park that would be open 24 hours. And the public is there, protesting income equality, bailouts, unemployment, foreclosures, and the like. They've attracted union support, celebrities, and raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to support their cause. With help from unions, the crowd had at least one rally that equaled the 68 Chicago March in numbers. These mobs are a growing concern, Eric Cantor said. Class warfare, Romney said. Un-Americans, said Herman Cain. This is George Soros behind this, Limbaugh said. They need to clarify what they want, Bill Clinton said. They might speak for me, Ron Paul said, if they behave themselves and attack the Fed. Occupy Wall Street was a surprise, especially the media attention that they have received. But I think there are two reasons why we should have expected this, one logistical, the other political. One logistical. New York City is a fairly easy place to get a crowd started. There's millions of people, mass transit options. Its politics tend to be liberal, which matches the OWS's general politics. Indeed, several members of the New York City Council have visited the protest, something that probably would not have occurred in Chicago in 1968. Finally, its police, though Mayor Bloomberg, just like Mayor Daley in 68, is not thrilled with the protest, Bloomberg is no Daley, and the police in NYPD are more tolerant, or at least more experienced with protesters. The second reason is political. The protesters are occupying a political void that's been left wide open. Wall Street and banks. Republicans won't attack them because, well, they just don't do that. Democrats, outside of a thin ultra-liberal group, have been shy on this front over the years. President Obama has not engaged in the harsh rhetoric of FDR talking about chasing money changers out of the temple. Democrats have been the beneficiary of Wall Street over the years. Donations from 1998 to 2006, 44% of them from Wall Street going to Democrats, according to Open Secrets. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Nor did Congress act sufficiently. Unlike the Pujo hearings we've talked about of the 19-teens or the Pecora Committee of the 1930s, there's been no full public airing, no investigation on TV followed by reforms. Finally, though one could imagine many of the people in OWS being the same types of people, if not the same people, who helped 
President Obama win his early primary victories against Hillary Clinton. Many also reflect those voters who are disappointed with the president now. Protest in one city is insignificant, but this month-old movement has grown. Occupy Philadelphia, Occupy Denver, Occupy D.C. Of course, it's been compared to the counter-Tea Party. But its success didn't stem from that. It didn't start like a coffee party just to counter the Tea Party. A protest in one city is insignificant, especially when one compares the protesting numbers to the population. And just to be a little realistic here, I will. It's impossible for 2,000 people to occupy Denver because it's a city of 550,000. 10,000 cannot occupy New York, a city of 8.3 million. Occupy Los Angeles is 31,811 likes on Facebook. But at the same time, 141,000 like the Los Angeles Times newspaper. Yet the month-old movement has spread that it has raised $300,000 and defeated an effort to get them to leave the park. Protests are an important part of American. They helped institute a Bill of Rights, the Jeffersonian Revolution, civil rights, labor unions, social security was the result of prodding from one of three protest movements that Franklin Roosevelt faced, the Francis Townhead Clubs. We have a right to assemble from the very beginnings and to petition our government. I might quibble with some of the issues raised by the protesters or question them as to what they truly think the solution to some of the problems they bring will be. Can't argue with how important demonstrations and organization is to our politics. On the other hand, we already have, perhaps, the most effective measure of public opinion available to us, democracy. And a protest must be considered this way. It is, in essence, an attempt to highlight one position at the expense of others through turnout numbers. 41 million people, for instance, voted for Michael Dukakis to be president in an election that he lost. Millions, 58 million, voted for John McCain. The government went the opposite way from them. And I've always said, and I did so in talking about the Tea Party movement, 58 million is a large base to pull from for any kind of protest movement. Election is a much more perfect form of expressing opinion than looking at demonstrations and setting policy based on that. I do think, however, we have a representation problem at the federal level when half a million people cannot really feel comfortable and get to know one representative to Congress. In the 1960s, protests were common. A few early campus protests in 65, and 25,000 people protest in D.C. By 1967, you've got 100,000 in D.C. protesting and 400,000 marching from Central Park to the U.N. building in New York. In 1968, you've got protests in several cities numbering one-half million. 1970, 450 campuses shut down and 400,000 in D.C., now protesting President Nixon. And this protest movement growing over those years in the 60s corresponded with the polls. When asked the question by Gallup, do you think sending troops to Vietnam was a mistake? March 1965, only 26%. December 1967, now 45%. January 1970, 57%. And 1971, May, 61%. Sending troops to Vietnam, a mistake. So one can conclude by that. The protests ended the war in Vietnam. There was a corresponding concern, though, about the protests themselves during the same time. In 1965, just 7% of voters thought social control was the key issue of the day. By 1970, that rose to 41%. 
more than foreign policy is the major issue, economics is the major issue, or civil rights is the major issue. Tellingly, it went down as soon as most of the protests ended. At the same time support was crumbling for Vietnam, 56% of the same people were saying that the police who were clubbing these protesters on TV handled Chicago right. Nixon exploited these kind of differences so that the unrest that sunk Humphrey became protests that Nixon, as an incumbent in 1972, could run against and win. So did the protests really end the Vietnam War? Well, they must have had some impact, but assuming the protests in the 1960s were younger, and they, they certainly were, the most consistent Gallup criticism of the Vietnam War came from older Americans who were aged 50 or over. In 1965, Americans 50 or older, only 29% of them saying Vietnam was a mistake, but 30 or under was only 15%. So that early criticism of the war was coming from the 50-year-older crowd. Eight years later, the under 30 are now convinced, up to 53% say the war was a mistake. But the over 50 crowd is at 69% saying the war was a mistake. This would seem to indicate that older Americans actually got us out of the war. Of course, the protesters may have swayed their parents and grandparents if not their own hawkish peers, and they may have swayed media, which would have influenced these groups. So do I bring up the Chicago 1968 convention in order to try to say that this is what's going to happen with Occupy Wall Street, you're all going to be clubbed and beaten, and it's going to be horrible? Am I some old fuddy-duddy who doesn't like to see protesters? No, it's not what I'm saying at all. I can compare the Occupy Wall Street to the 1968 convention. I'm going to also look at some other historical events to but also make a quick contrast. There are two differences. One is, even though a lot of the pictures you see on the media are of younger people, the 68 protests probably were a bit younger than OWS has, has turned out to be. One of the things I did in researching uh, this issue is not just look at the media pictures in case that we were seeing this kind of the mainstream media, you know, making OWS look bad. I looked at uh, Flickr. And pictures that just people had taken and just simply looked at photos. And it's a very general way of doing things. I still see a majority of the people under 40, you know, in these photos who look like they're under 40. They're definitely not all college students. There's a significant amount of middle-aged to older people. The other contrast would be that they are much better organized. There was an attempt to organize in Chicago. It kind of got out of control. I am trying to point out a little bit of the unpredictability of the result of demonstrations and protests. So does OWS have an effect? Or does it just breed counter-protest? Or support by the silent majority for whoever the Republican nominee turns out to be? Of course, we'll continue to observe. I'm not sure of a single issue which would end this protest. So I don't know how it will turn out. It's, it's a protest expressing a lot of varied frustrations. It does, for me, balance out what has been one-sided depictions of American public opinion and a lot of dominance in the media by the Tea Party as if that were the only group that can influence politics. One thing OWS has already done has taken the debate in America pretty far from is Obama a socialist and brought up new issues. And for those looking at the 2012 election, that's the good news for President Obama, okay, that there's this kind of more nuanced uh, politics, two engines now in the political world. We'll see where it goes. It's already, there's been violent clashes in some cities, Oakland, San Francisco. The bad news is this. If you look at the elections of 1968 
and I'll throw in 1920. Great unrest is not good for the incumbent president. I want to thank you for listening. The website's myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. The Facebook site there, archives available, $14.99. Go and grab it. And if you do like the program, please tell somebody about it. Thanks for listening. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.